Hello, welcome to this podcast called Finding Inspiration. It's a 20 or so minute weekly podcast where we interview someone with an amazing story. After the show, I know you're going to feel energized, invigorated, and inspired. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Welcome to Finding Inspiration. Okay, get ready. This episode is the very essence of resiliency. This CEO from Australia went to Nigeria, was bit by a mosquito, and subsequently had both of her feet amputated and has gone on, used that resiliency to consider herself just simply limb different. And her goal is to impact 1 billion lives by 2025. Listen to this episode. This will blow your mind. Stephanie, Denise Rodriguez, thank you for being with me today. We are going to talk about an amazing journey of your life from what you're calling collateral beauty, which is seeing good where there is bad, to how you were taken down by an invisible parasite and how it actually completely transformed your life. Welcome. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So take us back. You're an entrepreneur. You're a business person. You've traveled to over 60 countries in the world. Back in 2020, you were traveling to Nigeria and something happened. Tell us what happened. In 2019, I attended an organization called Hives Global Leaders Summit in Scotts Valley in California in August. And in my cohort were delegates from both Africa and India. And they, after hearing my mission of impacting a billion lives by 2025 that I kept reiterating throughout 2019, invited me to speak at their various Hive in-country activations. So I had two invites, one for Hive Africa and another for Hive India. And I did the Hive Nigeria Africa segment first. And, you know, I had read all of the travel warnings, you know, I'm not a novice traveler and read about what I needed to be concerned about for both of those two destinations. I had kind of bubble wrapped myself so that I was staying in the, in the hotel that the conference was taking place just to be uber careful. And on the very last day, a Sunday, I was invited by an organization called Travel Massive to speak at their monthly meetup to 80 travel professionals. And I went and talked to them about Wondersafe, what we were building with Wondersafe, my, my company and my startup. And then after the, the presentation, we were invited outside to take photos with the delegates some of those photos you can see on my Instagram, so they're they're still out in the public. But what I didn't know about it being sunset and next to a pool of water, um, I had been bitten three times on my left ankle, and I didn't know it. And then I left Nigeria, went via Abu Dhabi to India, did Hive India, spoke at the Australian High Commission, met with some of our customers, and had a week-long trip in India my first time. And then I flew back to Australia on a Wednesday, changed my luggage, and on Thursday I flew with my best friend to Boston on a trip that I'd won so randomly. But I also had some meetings with a woman from the U.S. State Department that I am in part of a working group with her for the Women in Security Council. Her name's Carrie. So I met with Carrie, did her podcast, had lunch. Uh, we walked around Harvard. We went to see the Red Sox play had a girls weekend. And on Sunday, we were in the airport waiting to fly back to Australia. 
and I didn't make it out of the lounge. I had deteriorated and so, so much so that my girlfriend was really worried about me and concerned and had been messaging her boyfriend going, Steph's not right. And in the airport lounge, the Delta lounge in Logan Airport, I had a seizure, was non-responsive, and the paramedics carted me out of that lounge on a, on a gurney, and I would be in a coma for two weeks. So when I woke up, I had come through severe septic shock, complete organ failure, that parasite, cerebral malaria that that mosquito gave me in those three bites had basically begun to take over my body. So I had a ninja inside me trying to kill me. And the the data around cerebral malaria and survival, cerebral malaria kills 97.7% of its victims. So it kills fast. It is a single winner game. There's no, you know, neutrals. And most of the time, and much like my instance, uh, the victim falls into a coma and then goes undiagnosed because it's just such a random thing. Even in my situation, the ICU doctors hadn't, it took them 20 hours to figure out what was wrong with me and I was rapidly declining. And when they were told tests for parasites, when they knew I'd been in Africa, they started looking for parasites and that's when cerebral malaria showed up. That was the beginning of a very long journey. What happened next? I know some of your family flew in from Australia and the doctors were trying to figure out how to save your life. What did they do for you at that point? Severe septic shock and sepsis is a is simply put a blood infection. And that parasite was 8% of my blood's volume. So it had begun multiplying in my body, but it got to such a level that my kidneys and liver just wouldn't let it through. It was, you know, the bigger it got, the more in, the more it took up, caused me to go into this severe septic shock. And that's complete organ failure. And my family had flown in from different parts of the United States. My son came and it was three times in the coma. The doctor said to my family, she won't live through the night. She doesn't have five minutes. They called him back and said, say goodbye, say your prayers, do what you do. It's game over. So, you know, they had been on this emotional roller coaster. The doctor said, there's one thing we can do. We can give her vasopressors and vasopressors are like adrenaline drugs. And simply put, they channel all the blood from your extremities, like your hands, your nose, places that don't need it. And they shove it all to your vitals to keep them pumping and functioning when situations are dire. The normal ratio of giving vasopressors is 60-40. So 60% of the blood might be pushed to the vitals, 40% is doing the rounds, running through your, your veins, keeping stuff happening. In so much is that I was so dire, Jen, they, they said, we're going to have to give her. The only thing we can do in this right now, in this instance where she's got five minutes, is give her 100% vasopressors and hope for the best. And we don't know that that'll work. It's no guarantee. But if she does survive this, in the randomness of that 2%, she's going to have collateral damages. And that's what I woke up with. A Hail Mary pass at that point. And, you know, they said, we don't know if she's going to make it or not. But if she does, she's going to have collateral damage. And my family just said, save her life. She'll work it out. She's strong. You know, it won't kill her. Um, Do what you got to do. And they just, you know, hoped and prayed that I would come through. Unfortunately, I did, but it was a pretty hectic time for all of those stakeholders to watch me. Um, They had filled me with 11 liters of fluid and then given me a drug called methylene blue that turned me purple. Like, 
like smurfy blue purple so i was unrecognizable to my family i had tubes coming out of everywhere i had a line coming out of my neck for dialysis you know tubes down my throat tubes down my nose it was pretty horrific to see me and you know i have a 13 year old son who had to come to that bedside and see his mother non-responsive and and just you know in in the worst possible state ever and, you know, fortunately I came through it, but much to like the doctors had promised there would be residual and collateral damage. And that was to both of my feet and my, my right hand. You survived, you came out of the coma. They airlifted you back from Logan to Australia, which that alone is a shocking story, how they got you on the plane and so forth. Leaving that aside, once you got back after about a year, you finally were told by a surgeon that trying to save your feet was not going to happen, that your feet were no longer salvageable. You had to have both feet amputated. Um, my heel bones were, were damaged permanently. Okay. You have a fusion of, you're calling it human and robotics parts that are your new feet now. So what, what did they do for okay, you? Okay, so the process and procedure is called osseointegration. Osseo is bone, integration is, you know, connection. And so they took metal and titanium rods and cut off where the damage, where the earliest and easiest point would be to do this osseointegration surgery, which is for me above ankle. So I have my knee, I have my mid calf, like where my calf was and down reaching towards my ankle, but somewhere between the calf and the ankle, they took off my legs. They took a metal and titanium rod and they put it through to my kneecap. And so I have hanging out of my amputation site. Um, the proper word for this is a stump, but I don't have a stump because I'm osseointegrated. So I have a metal rod hanging about four inches below where my limb ends and connects that rod connects to the prosthetic. So they, they fasten with an Allen key. I could get a day job at Ikea if I wanted because um, you get really <laughs> handy with Allen keys and they're essential. So, you know, there's always an Allen key on my body somewhere for, for quick access if one of my screws gets untightened. But my prosthetics literally screw on and off with an Allen key. And that, that fusion of bone and, that, and, um, and metal parts, uh, fortunately, the, the, the science is there that allow arm amputees, and you can see them that can wiggle their, their prosthetic fingers and do these things. That's actually coming from their brain. So the wiring to that prosthetic is actually sending that movement signal. For me, the way in which they, my doctor, Professor Munjid Almaderes, who is one of the world leading surgeons of this, they connected on one side of my leg where they amputated the other side, the nerve endings that parallel down your leg, they connected them back to each other. So when the technology is available, that I can have um, bionic and robotic feet and ankles that will go, you know, when you flick your heel randomly, I can't do that now. Mine are in a fixed position, but as the technology progresses, they'll be able to fit me with a prosthetic that my brain can tell my ankle to flick my foot. Right now, the technology is not there. Like arms and hands are really much more advanced than the limb that I need because I'm needing an ankle and a foot versus a knee, ankle, foot piece, which are three parts. 
um, because I was able to keep so much of my leg. Um, the part that I need is really ankle and foot control, but the, the prosthetics are not yet advanced enough. I'll probably be one of the first to get them when they do, because I am kind of the, the poster child in Australia where I live. I am the only bilateral above ankle osseo integrated female in the country. So there's not two of me. Wow. So everything we do here is kind of a little bit of a, you know, wait and see trial and error and, and just test and learn, which is kind of exciting. Actually, very amazing. So you went home from the hospital in a wheelchair. And then a year after this, you were given the prosthetic feet. I was in, a, in and out of hospital for much of 2020 and part of 2021. So I started, you know, I fell sick on the 29th of, of, of September of 2019. But we had begun amputations. My first amputations were February 15th of 2020. And it was around February 15th of 2021 that the MRI showed that the that all of the work we'd done to regenerate these heels and get these feet functioning again, it was a moot point and they were unsalvageable. So I had a year of being in a wheelchair, but then once I underwent osseo integration, it was again still taking it slowly. I had to relearn to walk again. I had to retrain my core from being sedentary in a bed for almost two years to being able to be upstanding and rebuild my body back, which was no easy feat. And at the same time, you had a company that you were running right? With partners and, and that had to continue. And you're also a mother to your hey, 16 year old son. So he's grown. Oh, okay. So how did you juggle all of that? How did you balance your business, your son with your own care? As you say, learning to walk well, again, <laughs> feed yourself, get, a, get around. Well, for, for a long time, my hand was bandaged. And as I mentioned to you, I lost part of my index finger and the webbing here. And when this was deteriorating, I only had one hand. So one good hand to you. So um, a lot of patience, you know, learning how to ask for help, learning how to, to say, you know, I can't do this, which was for me being such a type A and such a doer for everybody else. Part of the learning journey for me was really to get comfortable in my vulnerability and to learn how to ask for help. I'm very fortunate that, that my investors in WanderSafe and in my company, Jozu, were kind enough. I mean, technically, I was injured on the job. So not having uh, workers' comp and director's insurance, as I would strongly advise anyone to, meant that I had to go on this journey all by myself, commercially and economically. Um, because of that, my investors were kind enough to give me some grace, I think, through this. It was a question of whether I would ever, after coming out of that coma, what kind of cognitive damage I might have had. Cerebral malaria is what it is. It attacks the brain. So there was fluid on my brain. There was a question as to what I would suffer, um, any any disabilities, you know, cognitively. Um, and that was just, you know, it was just a one day at a time kind of journey. But I had to, you know, getting through this, I had a great group of girlfriends around me. I have a wonderful lead investor who has been, you know, by my side. She flew herself from Australia to Boston to be, you know, near me when I was in the coma. And that's far more than an investor usually would do. But I'm fortunate to have that love and relationship, you know, with my with my investor team that they gave me the grace to get better and were patient and have been patient on this journey. Again, we, we couldn't see COVID coming. 
but it was almost, you know, a blessing, a blind blessing that we were able to take a step back, you know, not lose our traction and then, you know, return when the world was opening up again would be on time with when I was, you know, at a point where I was at a hospital and able to to start doing things. Tell us about WanderSafe. WanderSafe is an ecosystem. So it's a bit of hardware and software. It's an app and a personal safety device that's nonviolent. I developed it in 2018 with a retired CIA safety expert who actually was in Benghazi when all of that stuff went down. Um, and Thomas told me that that safety, personal safety comes down to three things, information, environmental awareness, and equipment. And I understood the first two, quite logically, being a data geek as I am. But equipment, I said, Thomas, what is that? And he said, you know, things that help you to be better prepared and call for help. From his brief, we sat down and I designed a small personal safety device that looks a little something like this. It's a little key ring, basically, or a holdable that's got tools in it. It's got a light. It's got a siren. It's got a strobe light for distraction, but it ultimately has an SOS button that when you press it three times and it's connected to the app via low-level Bluetooth, it starts, it opens up the app, it sends an SOS text to the people that you've put in the app to notify, whether it be an employer, a partner, a flatmate, a sister, sibling, parent, uh, that you're in trouble, and then it updates every minute and tells them where you are in the app until either the phone goes dead or you turn it off. So having one of these on your person makes you 87% less likely that an assault will actually eventuate. Because one, there's called a success mindset. And that's that you have a plan in case you're confronted that you know what you're going to do versus get surprised and be ill-prepared. But secondly, most of the, most of the, um, assault, you know, bag snatching and things like that are crimes of opportunity. And when you as a person are better prepared than that assailant wants you to be, then they're going to go find an easier mark. So they're likely when you let off a siren and a strobe and all these other things, they're going to take off and they're going to go find someone easier to mess with. So you reduce the risk in this, but the app is actually where the real intelligence is. The app is free and it always will be free. It's been free since we launched it in 2018. And it allows you to annotate your journey, tell others where you are and whether you feel you're safe or not safe, say what's bothering you, take a photo of it because a picture is worth a thousand words. But even in that instance of calling for help faster than you can do on a handset, you can actually set up the, the Siri and the Google shortcuts. So you could say, hey, Siri, Harry Spaghetti, if that's your code word for I'm in trouble, that's going to open up the WanderSafe app and start sending those text messages, even if you don't have a beacon. So it's really a, a functional free tool that you can empower yourself to be better prepared if you are confronted and feel uneasy, whether that be at home in a domestic violence situation or when you're outside the home, commuting, traveling, doing whatever, and just feel that your safety is about to be compromised. And that's where we were. That's amazing. It's amazing. What are you doing with the UN? You're working on a TED Talk. So my TED Talk is done. Um, thankfully, I was a guest at TEDx Women, Littleton Women in South Africa a few weeks ago. So that will be on the internet probably in May sometime when it's edited and go, it will go on the TED platform. Um, I'm a member of UN Women Australia. And on November 25th, a fellow UN Women Australia member formulated a treaty, a covenant on, and we launched it on the UN Day for the Eradication of Violence Against Women. The covenant is called the Wandersafe Accord, and you can go to thewandersafeaccord.com and, and see that where it is. 
And what all it states is just reiterating the values of the United Nations and its pledge to end gender-based violence by 2025 as part of the Millennium Development Goals. And it's a it's just a covenant that says, I too will do my bit to help and gender-based violence. I will not be passive. I will be active. I will speak up for others. And we've introduced this to corporations, sporting teams, schools, um, governments, and we're, we're asking people to join us in this active fight to end GBV. Because of all the 17 sustainable development goals, this one is the single one that we can do without requiring more infrastructure. You know, we don't need more wind farms. We don't need to end fossil fuels, build more schools. You know, all of these that are the 17 SDGs are, are big, hairy goals. They really are. But the one that is about ending gender-based violence is just about us making a conscious decision actively. And that's what I advocate for strongly. I know you just finished a book called Thank You, Mrs. Carter. You're about to launch that too. When you look back on your life so far, you've done amazing, just amazing things. You have a very big picture of yourself in how you plan to impact the world. How do you see your life going forward? Do you consider yourself, I don't want to say disabled, but do you consider yourself able-bodied? Stephanie, what does Stephanie's life look like in the next five years? Well, I made this pledge of impact a billion lives by 2025. And this recent trip to South Africa, you know, was a bit of a, a test and learn for me to see if I could actually travel alone for the first time since my injuries and to be able to be front facing. And I, you know, I do the same things I did. I just do them differently. Jen, I, I just have to, you know, navigate the world a little bit different. I know I'm vulnerable to things and I used to think I was invincible. Taking a step back and exercising better care, I'm no less tired and no less passionate in spite of my my limb difference. And that's what it's called. I'm technically referred to as disabled, but I see myself as augmented because I have superpowers that you don't. You have both of your limbs, but I can walk across hot sand and you can't. I will never get a blister. You will, <laughs> you know. So I look at the, you know, just the differences in how I showed up before, but you know, until until that mission is complete, until gender-based violence is not a thing, you know, I I still have work to do. And you know, some of the work that I do now, whether I like it or not, I'm a poster child for limb difference. I'm a poster child for osseointegration because I'm the most obvious case, especially in Australia, for you know osseointegration and bilateral amputees. I'm a woman. I'm a startup founder. I have ideas. So, you know, Jack London made a made a quote in the 1800s, and he said, you know, I will not use my days trying to prolong them. I will use my time. And if I were to get a tattoo that said anything, and I don't have any tattoos, but if I were to get one, that's probably what I would say. You know, I'm not going to live in bubble wrap waiting to die when my life is such a miracle and I'm given such an opportunity. So, you know, I intend to use my time. And when my time is done, it will be my time to go. But until then, coming through death leaves you transformed. It makes you very aware of who your friends are. It makes you very aware of not sweating the small stuff that you can't fix. It also shows you how strong you are. And now, it, you know, in fear of me losing a limb, it's not going to end my life. I know that. The core essence of me is still me, despite the, the limb difference and the, and the challenges and the, the physical look of my body. I'm still 100% me and 100% passionate. And I just want to live 
every single day to live out that mission and, and serve those who I can serve, whether it be an inspiration to getting over adversity and resilience. And some people look to me for that now on social media and, and, uh, and, and in circles where I speak, but you know, I know I will continue to talk to audiences. I'll continue to write. I'll continue to work. I'll continue to advocate for those who don't have voices. And I think that's enough to keep me busy and, and still be a mom to this rapper in the next room. Amen. I tell you something. I, I've done a, a number of these episodes and you are unbelievably inspirational. I mean, how you can have this go forward attitude, deep, deep belief in yourself and unbelievable stamina and resilience is incredibly inspirational to me. And I really, really thank you for your time. Thank you for joining us this week on Finding Inspiration. Hey, I would appreciate it if you would click on that subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. See you next week. I'm Jennifer Weissman.